You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Cameron Lalana. And I'm Matt Garrisonovich. And today we're covering part one, chapter 23 of Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate. And we are finally, after uh, talking about her quite a bit, meeting Zhenya Shaposhnikov, also known as Yevgenia Shaposhnikov. Shaposhnikov. Uh, she is the youngest of Alexandra's daughters. And instead of moving to Kazan, like um, most of her family, not all of her family, uh, she has chosen instead to go to, um, and then please forgive my pronunciation, Koibyshev. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to edit that one later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is modern day Samara. And she is now living with uh, Jenny uh, Genrachovna, who is an old governess for their family. And uh, Matt, let's let's talk about not just Jenya, but also this interesting communal apartment that they now all live in. She she and Jenny share this small room in you know in this communal apartment. And they've got interesting. We have an interesting array of people from doctors to workers to engineers, uh, which they interact with for this very small somewhat bureaucratic and very sad chapter yes uh finally getting to genya everybody's talking about her everybody wants to be her so much going on with genya um i i think it's funny that it takes like 100 pages to get to her because i think at least like theoretically she's the one around which everyone is sort of floating kind of connected loosely but this whole family, they're kind of the anchor of the story because you take a, you go 100 pages just meeting a bunch of characters and you're not really sure how they all connect or how they're all related or what they're all doing there. Um, why Grossman has decided to write about these specific people. And, well, they all serve their own purposes. But one of the reasons is that they are, you know, on, on a narrative level, they're connected to this family. So that's important to note. Uh, yeah, did it take us uh, 115 pages to get there? Sure. Also, yes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. As happens. As happens. But so this is uh, kind of an interesting chapter because you get another. Alfie doesn't want to hear me. He's out. <laughs> don't hear any more of this <laughs> crap. He said, "This is not how I came away from the novel. I can't stand <laughs> this anymore." So you're gonna start talking about communal apartments. I am out. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to get a very angry Instagram message. <laughs> Um, so I, I don't think maybe we've gotten to this chapter. I'm kind of at that woozy point of, of, uh, coordinating this where I'm like, I can't remember what I've already read, what I've posted about and what I've talked about. Um, so I'll just go ahead and, and, and make this point again, if I haven't already made it a hundred times by now, but th <laughs> there is some debate on what the communal apartments and specifically the, the wartime atmosphere looks like, right? When you, I definitely said this, when you compress everybody from Moscow into these, small spaces and it, it creates a very strange uh atmosphere overall some people have argued that this is a sort of this is a sort of life in the life and fate which is that when you compress the life of an entire city as far down and you grind it down as far as it can possibly go it actually creates a, a more a larger sense of freedom within that community um interesting to think about uh, in this case, I, I'm not so sure. 
Uh, this is more talking about the sort of bohemian nature of the of the evacuees in some cities. But in this particular case, it's pretty depressing, I would say. Um, it's It doesn't seem particularly nice the way that the, the apartments are arranged. Everyone's kind of crowded in there. Um, and it just doesn't seem like a particularly pleasant place to be. Imagine the awkwardness of running into your roommate who you haven't talked to in a week, uh, running into them in the kitchen, except there are 60 of them. Of them. Oh, yeah, 10. <laughs> right. And a cat. And a cat. Yes. So, yeah, this chapter basically centers on Jenny. And like you mentioned, she was a governess for this family. But now the sort of uh, sort of the roles are reversed in this case. And I mean, she's really like she's not a threat to anybody. She's just living her life. She's helping out, uh, I think, a, a dentist with a, an old mother who just had a stroke. She's working as a caretaker. All she has in the world is this cat that she loves, that she's trying to protect. She's feeding it her own rations, which is just really tugging on the heartstrings, right? And, you know, eventually, it, I mean, it, it doesn't come out. It's known that she's German and not a, she, she's not proud of what's happening, right? She's pretty adamantly outspoken against it. But uh, even still, she's, you know, exiled to Siberia just for basically for being German. And um, Jenya takes takes offense to this and tries to figure out what, you know, what's happening and, you know, nothing. She's pretty much, you know, blockaded um, and prevented from finding anything, essentially saying, you know, don't you understand? Like, go home. You're Russian. Go home. <laughs> this is not your business. This is not for you. It's a, it's a really, as you know if you've read it, an incredible amount of menace conveyed in those three lines. Go home. Don't waste people's time by asking unnecessary questions. Well, I was just asking about winter clothes. Don't you understand? Said the man in a terrifyingly quiet voice. You know, is that menacing to her to leave? Is that terrifyingly quiet because he's saying, don't you understand the implication of sending Jenny far north? She's not going to need winter clothes. Yes. You know, we're yeah, it's the latter, but <laughs> but an incredible amount of power conveyed in that scene, in those three lines. Yes, and so there's this quote that I loved from from today's passage that talks about the the feelings of living in the situation, talking about how they arose from the strange incongruity between the tremendous military strength of the Soviet state and this dark kitchen with its poverty, gossip, and general pettiness. The incongruity between cold, hard steel and kitchen pots and pans full of potato peelings. That was a great translation too, just the way it like phonetically it sounds. I liked it a lot. I just, you know, wanted to say that, but I love the way that the, the cold, hard Soviet bureaucracy is portrayed just by everyday individual people. I mean, it's just the, the fullest expression of, of this power is conveyed exclusively so far. It feels like through clerks. And that's awesome. It's just it just gets to something that's that's really hard to explain about about this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think as you pointed out yesterday, we have this great contrast in the experience of this bureaucratic state, and perhaps in seeing this contrast, we really do see the fullness of it. Where we have, you know, at the top, we've got Getmanov, and he is basically able to make everything happen with just a letter, and then you have the innumerable number 
innumerable number of clerks who actually make that happen and still have to go home and are living in their communal apartments and are have their neighbors they like and the neighbors they don't like, right? And we see the the workings of it, right? We're not allowed to just imagine it as this far off thing of like, oh, isn't it this kind of menacing bureaucracy? No, it's people who make it up and it's the people who make it make it happen. And, and that's even maybe more depressing than looking at this strange far off bureaucracy when you consider the people who have to go to work and make those things happen, even amid this wartime and then go home and, you know, gossip about their neighbors. Yeah. And the, the just the level of gossip, everyone's chit-chatting in that communal kitchen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I want to kind of carry on with that because I think that ties into something that I'm tracking at least, which is that we've been talking about the emergence of Jewish identity. And I think you can also possibly read the emergence of the sudden importance of non, of any ethnicity, which is not Russian, which becomes a little suspect. Um, we know for sure, I, I can link a, a a paper which we previously talked about during our Stalingrad series, uh, in which there were waves of like suspicion of certain non-Russian ethnic groups in the years running up to World War II and, and the years during when, uh, by not by virtue, but just simply being a part of that group lent you to being suspicious or lent you to being deported, right? Um, you know, the Chechen people were deported out of the Caucasus region, many, many never to return. And you see that being depicted here, where Jenny has, you know, no relation to the German fascist state, not only in her words, but because if anything, she's kind of a czarist. She just longs for the days that she could be a governess for the Russian nobility, because that was kind of exciting. She got to travel the world. She got to see interesting things. Um, so like this is a, she is demonstrated not to be related to that, but by by the very fact of her Germanness, just like for other characters, the very fact of their Jewishness or whatever other ethnicity then determines them in the eyes of others around them to the engineer, uh, you know, to the engineer there, she is still suspect. And that, of course, leads to her being deported in almost certain death. And interestingly, once she's absent, all that gossip, which had been about her Germanness, now turns towards the closely related, the closest target to her, Zhenya, and almost as if absolving themselves of what they may know to be her fate, now they start talking about Jenny, Zhenya. And did she turn Jenny in? Right? And But you also see the complexity of characters where the engineer who had been so accusatory towards Jenny then still takes care of her cat until one of the other neighbors, accidentally or not, pours boiling water on the cat and kills it. As one of our Discord users pointed out in the chat today, uh, Leia says they are deeply distressed by the mounting cat deaths. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you pointed out, more cat deaths than Magnesia Gorsk mentions. Not a good direction. Not a good direction. Mm -mm. Not a good trend. I had something I was going to say, but I keep forgetting it. That's what I was going to say. Just, and we'll talk about it more in our, our main episode probably, but just that, you know, Grossman's sort of, you know, him writing in, in, in the midst of the doctor's plot and having that be a really 
uh, foundational event that sort of happens to him uh, kind of shows why this is um, not like an eternal problem, but something that is a pervasive and reoccurring problem um, over and over and over. Um, it's not something that just... Ha Sorry, do you mind if I break in? You want to talk for those who might not know what the doctor's plot is? Do I outline it or do I do I drift feed it just for the just for the main episode? You you have to listen to it. Oh, sorry. All right, I didn't realize this is a sell forward. Never mind. Ignore me. Yeah. Um. What are you gonna do? No. Real quick. It's it, it was a it was a sort of widespread anti-Semitic campaign in the Soviet Union that was kind of alleging that a this that a group of Jewish doctors were conspiring to kill party officials and Stalin and it's a whole it's it's a whole thing um but we can we can talk about it more for sure and that's going to be really important for Grossman because of his own let's call it involvement in that particular incident right his involvement just by just by simply being Jewish and a public figure, he was involved, basically, which is how it worked. There's a lot of important things that happened to Grossman in relation to this. And this chapter in particular made me think of that. Um, because it's it's not just a it's not just a wartime thing. It's something that continued to happen even after it was you know, after they were claiming it was necessary to, you know, do these things. The sort of wartime um just say the sort of necessities with air quotes, right? Uh, become a permanent feature and that's really dangerous yeah and that's something you'll hear more about in just a few days when you listen to our first full episode on it instead of good thing i you know, know you were whatever. thinking hey it's been 23 episodes what can we get a longer one <laughs> <laughs> you've only put out 230 roughly minutes of content so far in this book i'm in a desert of content <laughs> I'm looking around. There's no life and fate to be found. <laughs> <laughs> I have no life. I have no fate. All I have is 23 episodes. I am Judge Holden and it against the world. <laughs> <laughs> I will delete these episodes of the Life and Fate read-along so that no one else may know their knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that exists without my commentary exists without my consent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before this becomes the Blood Meridian cast, I think we should sign off for the day. Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, fortunately, you'll hear from us again soon. Bye.